This episode is brought to you by Past Life. Serving in the military is inherently dangerous. Are your affairs in order? The grief a service member's family feels upon learning of their passing is difficult enough, but the days, weeks, and months that follow are filled with stressful decisions. Past Life is a single solution, secure cloud-based platform where funeral preparations, last wishes, will information, financial assets, business continu- continuation information, social media account information, etc., can be uploaded to recipients of the user's choosing. Past Life allows you to alleviate the stress and lift the fog for your loved ones, preeminently by giving them a vital trove of information in multiple areas. Listeners can save 10% by using the code BTU, that's Bravo Tango Uniform, at checkout. Learn more at pastlife.com. That's pass-life.com. Pass your loved ones a lifeline. And just going off script here, I'm so grateful for Past Life support. The way that this worked is they believe in what we're doing. They gave us financial support to continue what we're doing and just asked that we read this before the episode. They gave us free reign to interview anyone we want, and we always have a long queue of people that we're wanting to interview. So thank you so much, Past Life. Definitely check them out. Um, They've been incredibly supportive and grateful for enabling this conversation. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their civilian career. Today's episode number 384, SWAT Team, Mental Health, and More with Jeff McDonald. What I realized is how do I want to be remembered? What legacy do I want to leave behind? Do I want to be known as a kick-ass cop, down for the cause, down to kick in a door, get into a gunfight with, etc. Or do I want to be remembered as a good dad? And I'm working on the good dad part. I'm not a great dad. I'm, I have many, many struggles, but I'm working on it. And at the end of the day, what's more important? Being a knuckle dragon cop that's down for the cause or being that awesome dad that's at all the soccer games, football games, baseball games, cheerleading, etc. And that's what Again, that epiphany was like, that's how I want to be remembered. I was riding a high after my conversation with Jeff for days. I appreciate his strength, vulnerability, and authenticity in this conversation. You can view this interview in two parts. The first part, we discuss his transition from the Marine Corps into law enforcement, which includes work in prisons, on patrol, and with the SWAT teams. In the second half, we both talk about our experience with therapy and mental health. Jeff talks about candidly about PTSD and depression, and we both open up about the positive impact therapy has had on our lives. If this latter topic resonates with you, there are so many great resources out there to support you. The one that comes immediately to mind, I learned about in episode 368 with Joe Quinn, where he talked about Headstrong. That's at getheadstrong.org where you take a 60-second survey and as a veteran get paired with best-in-class clinicians for unlimited therapy. But as we talk about in this interview, I don't want to spin this as a if you're contemplating suicide, get help type of conversation. I'm a big believer that therapy is a preventative maintenance as well, that it's similar to the Olympic athletes who work with elite coaches. It's a great way to deepen as a human being, understand yourself more, and ensure you're operating at your peak capacity. That's why I'd encourage, regardless of if you're an extremist or if you're feeling great right now, equally to check out getheadstrong.org or other therapy resources for the military or civilian community. With that, let's dive in to my conversation with Jeff McDonald. Dive, dive. 
Joining me today in Missoula County, Montana, my guest is Jeff McDonald. Jeff, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. I'm extremely happy to be here. Special thanks to Steve Bain for making the connection, and I know he was really excited to, to, to speak with you last. Um, I want to give listeners just a very abbreviated bio. Uh, Jeff is a safe school specialist at the University of Montana. His career started in the Marine Corps, where he served for four years with two combat deployments and has included work in law enforcement and as a SWAT officer. Um, just to make space at the start, Jeff, anything you want to add to that bio or, or you want listeners to know? Well, first and foremost, uh, I served with 2nd Battalion 3rd Marines, the Island Warriors out of Hawaii. Uh, that's where I was stationed in Hawaii. So, And then uh, 11 years of my career was uh, spent in Southern California as a police officer and then a little over a year here in uh, Missoula. Montana. Let's, let's start with that, that first part then. So you, you have this incredible experience in the Marine Corps, you get out, what was that transition like? What was that first job search like? The transition was a lot harder than I thought. And I didn't want to, being a cop as a child was kind of like a dream of mine, being a SWAT cop specifically. However, uh, high school kind of changed that, that idea for me. (laughs) I was kind of a knucklehead in high school and uh, didn't love the cops as much, and they didn't love me. Um, <laughs> and then I got out of the Marine Corps, and uh, I went to, they call it an MPAT, which is a physical agility test for firemen. And I walked in, and I did really well on the MPAT. Um, and they asked me if I wanted to do an interview with the fire captain. And here I am in you know PT clothes, sweat, and porn, sweat pouring off my body. And I walk into this interview and the captain tells me or asked me to tell me about myself, tell him about myself. And I do. And I explain, you know, just discharged from the Marine Corps honorably as a sergeant, uh, two combat tours, one to Afghanistan in 2005, one in 2006 as an infantry Marine. And he says, "Okay, are you a paramedic or an EMT? No, sir. I literally just discharged last month. Okay, All right. Do you have a fire science? Uh, background and or have you completed a fire academy respectfully sure no I did not I literally just discharged from Hawaii last month and he looked at me stone cold in my face and said brother you're a dime a dozen Hmm. and I humbly said this interview is over sir and I walked out and lo and behold my next door neighbor uh, she was a commander with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And I vented to her like, I can't believe this guy. Who does he think he is? I'm not a dime a dozen. I know what I am and I know who I am and I know what I've done. Nothing special, but I'm not a dime a dozen. And she said, well, firemen suck. Come be a cop. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she's a, she's a 30 year deputy sheriff for LA County. And she says, I will help you along this process. I will get you hired as a deputy. And that's how my transition went. And I didn't realize it's all about who you know sometimes, not what you know. And she was somebody to know because I was very lucky to get hired when I did. I love that you valued yourself enough to say like, you know, there, there's a certain humility in that, that you're like, you're not saying that you're anything special, but you're certainly not a, a commodity at dime a dozen. And I love that you had the conviction just to leave leave that conversation, which feels like the appropriate response. Oh, I wanted, I had some very colorful words for him. I just, I bit my tongue because I still have some bearing from the Marine Corps and uh, I wanted to 
let them know where I stood, but be respectful at the same time. And it was, it was, it's been a true blessing, you know, God opens certain doors for you and closes others. So I believe that, you know, God wanted me to be a cop for a little bit. Mm. And I, I also like what you said, which is there is this serendipity component where having that conversation with this lady led to this, led to you even realizing that law enforcement was a route for you to go at that time. But also I'm, I'm imagining, you know, opening the door for you to at least start the application, which, which might not have happened otherwise. And I think it's a good reminder for listeners that like that, that's why it's good to talk to a lot of people. You never know where that will lead. Oh, 100%. I, I'm a firm believer in communicating and, and, you know, if I was a jerk, to her, or if I was like not a nice neighbor to her, we lived next to each other for at least 10 or 15 years. So if I wasn't like a neighborly person, she would have never extended that offer to me. Or if she didn't believe that I was a decent human being, she would have never extended that offer. So I I am a firm believer in it is who you know sometimes, but it's also the uh, relationships that you build. And, and hypothetically, if we knew each other and then you knew somebody that needed somebody or was looking to hire somebody, if I'm not a good friend, not a good person, you're not going to recommend me to that person. So, you know, don't sell yourself short, but don't burn any bridges either. I love that. That's why I chose not to say some colorful words to that fire captain. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And um, I'm curious what the process was like. So, you know, from there, what did it look like? But I'm also curious, you know, having everyone listening, having some common background in the military, like kind of how it related to the, the boot camp experience from the military? Yeah, it, law enforcement uh, specifically is a paramilitary organization. Um, same, similar rank structures, um, things like that. The academy, they try and make it like a boot camp or, you know, basic training. But I think for me, it was kind of like, oh man, I've heard that one before. Oh, this is never going to end. I guarantee you in like 15 minutes, this is going to end. <laughs> you know, that, that you can remind yourself like, oh, I remember that in boot camp, or, you know, when they said this, blah, blah, blah. It, it all does kind of relate and it, it's a little easier versus like civilians that go straight into the academy. Uh, it's a, I, I saw some of my buddies, they struggled a little bit as far as someone yelling in their face or holding a push up position, learning how to march. Those basics that we take for granted as, as veterans, uh, you know, we pick up really fast and we stand out a little bit more than a civilian that's kind of thrust, thrust into this situation. So how, how long was it and what, you know, what was it like? And I wonder at what point did, did you, I don't even know how it works, but like at what point did you veer off into SWAT specifically? So uh, the, the application process takes a long time. Um, I do appreciate that because they're trying to vet you as a, as a human, Right. So they spoke to my neighbors. They spoke to um, friends, you know, people that you recommend on an application. The application process took approximately, I want to say, eight months from uh, from the time I submitted my papers to the time I got a phone call saying uh, we would like you to uh, to attend our academy on this date. So it it did take some time. You uh, you have several interviews with um, current, uh, deputies and, or city police, wherever you decide to go. And, uh, you also have like psych tests, written tests, and then you have to also do a physical agility test to make sure that you are at least qualified enough to go into the academy. 
So that process, like I said, it was, I think about eight months. And then the academy I attended was approximately five and a half months. Oh, wow. Okay. For some reason, I was thinking it'd be like two months or something like that, but that's, that's. So the Montana Academy is three months. Okay. So I, every state and or county and or agency has a little bit of a different approach. Uh, Montana here is the three month Academy uh, where, and then the, different county where I lived down in Southern California at the time, theirs was a six month plus academy. Uh, you know, just one random question. Sure. Uh, do, do they, do they pay you at the academy? And I'm kind of curious, like for those eight months when you were applying, like how did you make ends meet while you were going down this path? So I was fortunate enough that I was smart and I had good leadership in the Marine Corps. And when I got back from a deployment, I didn't go out and buy the car and buy the all the new clothes and whatever, you know, brand new computers and blah, blah, blah. I was, I, I spoiled myself a little bit, but I was smart and I had good parents that taught me how to budget and plan and save. So I actually discharged the Marine Corps with a little over 50 grand in my pocket. Wow. Which isn't bad for an enlisted That's great. Guy. No, that's but great. I, I also lived the frugal life. I was stuck in the barracks and, uh, it, you know, you, you buy pizza with a buddy of yours on the weekends and you get at the chow hall and you, you save money that way. So I, I kind of s- survived off my savings and I was very grateful that my parents let me come back and live with them. So I didn't have rent. I, um, I love the quote from Jocko Willing and Leif Babin, where they said discipline equals freedom. And oh, I feel like fans. that's such a beautiful example where you were disciplined with your finances and that gave you tremendous freedom you know, otherwise you might not have had the luxury to pursue something that seemed like it was a, a good initial fit for you. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I, I was very lucky. And mm. uh, yeah, again, discipline equals freedom, huge fan of Jocko and, and their podcast and, you know, the echelon front crew. So, and so at what point did you veer off to SWAT? So my, my first agency was with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and I was stuck in the jails. I was a jail deputy for a little over three years Wow! and uh, fortunate enough to work in the gang modules. So I got to work and learn about gang tattoos and gang lingo and who's who in the zoo and learning how to actually talk to hardened criminals. I worked in LA and LA is known for their gangsters, Bloods, Crips, um, Hispanic gangs, Compton Barrio 13, et cetera. Uh, you learn about all these cliques and gangs and very, very fortunate. However, I didn't join law enforcement to be a babysitter. And that is ultimately what a jail deputy is. It is Groundhog's Day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And you know when linen is, you know when pill call is. My, my, the places I wanted to go and be a patrol deputy would have taken me eight to nine years to stay in jail to get out to those stations. And I didn't want to spend a third of my career in the jails. And I had some friends and my wife had some friends that uh, worked for the city of Ontario, which is in Southern California, about an hour east of Los Angeles. And uh, I threw an app in and I didn't have to do because I'm already a sworn officer for the state of California. I didn't have to jump through as many hoops. Uh, The background was just as long, still had to do psych tests, still had to do interviews. I just didn't have to do like written tests and physical agility tests because I've already passed those those requirements. So uh, Ontario said yes, and I became an Ontario police officer, and then went straight to patrol. And and for the portion when you were in the jail, were you always? Did you just always feel? Um, 
uh, on guard? Like, were you always just tense, no. you know, or, or what was that? At like? first, yes, because that's a whole new animal. And you're dealing, I remember they threw me the keys. They said, go do your checks, make sure no one's dead or beating up anybody inside those cells. And I'm like, who's coming with me? Like, no, you're going on your own boot. <laughs> wow. So you're, you know, it is very intimidating because you're dealing with, again, with murderers, you know, people that carry guns and not in jails, obviously, but I mean, you're dealing with hardened, hardened criminals and fighters and you name it. So there is that intimidation factor, but those dudes are sharks. If they smell a little bit of blood, they're going to attack. So I kind of just put on my Marine face, if you will, you know, no, you know, had bearing and walked in and just handled business like I normally would. It took some time to learn and they knew, they knew I was fresh. They could smell it, <laughs> mm. but they also knew that I had a little bit of confidence in me. And I think that my military presence and the way I carry myself, the way I dress, the way my uniform was tight and crisp and still believe in those things. Um, I think they, they understood. And then after a while you start learning how to talk to them and learning how to let certain things slide and, you know, you kind of gain their respect and they, you know, it, it makes it a little easier. What, what was the, how long were you on patrol then? And like, what was that like? Patrol's fun. Patrol, being a patrolman is a great time because you can be as active as you want, or you can just handle the calls that come to you uh, on the radio or on the computer. So good cops are the ones that are turning over the rocks, looking for the bad guys. They're the ones that are hitting the alleys, um, you know, going blacked out and driving through like the bad neighborhoods, looking for the bad guys. Um, you know, out being proactive, as we call it in law enforcement, looking for crime as it's occurring or before it occurs, trying to find guys with guns, guys with dope. That's that's what a good cop does. A lazy cop is the cop that they send him a call. He goes to handle that call and then he waits for another call. So I, I had a blast on patrol. Patrol is a lot of fun. Working nights was awesome before I had kids. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was three so, years in the jail. How long how long were you on patrol then? So I did four years of patrol. Um, I was very fortunate when I got hired with the city of Ontario. I linked up with some former Marines that were all combat vets. And um, one of them, my mentor, one of my mentors over at the city of Ontario um, asked me what I wanted to do. And one of my lifelong goals as a young kid, and then once I got into law enforcement, was to get on a SWAT team and Ontario has a good SWAT team. They're very reputable when they go to competitions and they do a good job. And uh, I was fortunate enough to try out uh, right after I cleared probation. So uh, anytime you're hired, you, you do have to serve a probationary period. You're an at, at will employee for the first at least year. Um, you can have your probation extended. So as soon as I cleared probation, uh, there was SWAT tryouts and I was able to try out and go into an interview and uh, was accepted on my first year, first attempt. Wow. What was that? What was the, um, I don't want to call it an interview, but what was the, the process like to, was it like a week or how long was that? No, no, it was just a, you submit a letter of, of interest basically, or a memo, a memo to the captain. Um, and I'm speaking specifically from my experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, every, every agency has their own, own rules and ways of doing business. But for me, I submitted a letter of interest on a memo form stating why I want to be on the SWAT team and why I think I'm qualified enough to be on the SWAT team. And then uh, you get accepted based off of uh, the city of Ontario. You had to have at least three years of experience on 
uh, as a police officer. So they actually allowed my jail time experience because I was sworn to coincide with the one year that I had at the city of Ontario. So I was able to be accepted. And then we did a physical agility test, which was, you know, you end up running a, a mile and some change and then do a bunch of push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups. And, and then you go into a shooting course to see how you handle weapons. And then, um, and then an interview after that. Okay. How long, what was the SWAT experience like and how long was that? I was on the SWAT team for about six years wow. before I moved up here. SWAT's a lot of fun. I was, <laughs> I was told early by the same mentor that helped me get onto the SWAT team was don't just be a SWAT guy, be a guy that they need on every call. Wow. So find the jobs that are going to put you in the, in the, in the action and do those jobs. So I followed his, his lead. Uh, he was a breacher. And uh, after I, you know, cut my teeth as a, as just a regular operator, meaning like learning all the, all the intricacies of a SWAT team, because there's a lot of jobs in there, not just dropping flashbangs and make an entry. Um, you have to be proficient in a lot of things and they're not going to let you do certain jobs if you're not qualified. So I became decent at a entry specialist and or a perimeter guy. And uh, I'll be the first to tell you the perimeter is one of the worst places to be on a SWAT call out. It is boring. So um, I followed my mentor's lead and became a breacher and then got to do some really fun things. And if you're a breacher, you're not on the perimeter because you have to breach a front door or a back door or something like that, or a window or a sliding glass door. So you get to be in the action. Did it feel like being back in the Marines? Parts of it. Um, definitely not as dynamic in the Marine Corps. We're very dynamic and we're methodical when we search, but we don't have a lot of the rules that, that law enforcement has. So there's a lot of hurry up and get to the scene and get kitted up and get in the Bearcats and park up front and wait. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it is similar to the Marine Corps hurry up and wait, but sometimes our wait periods are like eight hours. Wow. So you're sitting out on a, it could be a hot night or a cold night or a hot morning, whatever. And you're in full gear and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. So a lot of negotiations, a lot of, you know, we have to wait on search warrants from detectives and make sure we have a good crime. There's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that the movies don't show because that would be a terrible movie of a bunch of cops waiting to gain entry. And they're just sitting out there, you know, just waiting, smoking, smoking and joking. <laughs> so. That was that would be the major difference. The tactics are relatively the same because tactics really haven't evolved that much, in my opinion. We've gotten a lot safer and a lot smarter as the years have progressed, especially within combat, and we've you know lessons learned. However, there's a lot a lot of wait period, a lot mm -hmm. of downtime. So, how did you? I'm I'm kind of making a guess here, but um, I just think of like the three years in in the jail, and you know, almost a decade on patrol and with SWAT. I'm guessing you're in all of those. You're interacting with a very um, troubled part of society, yeah. and I imagine there is um, an insane amount of stress just around physical safety and, and, and like there's, it, there, it feels like there's a lot of tolls in this line of work. I'm just kind of curious what that was like for you and how you um, stayed afloat amidst 
all of that stress and dealing with, with some really, like you said, hardened criminals. Yeah. And it, it's, I'll be, I'll be very blunt. It wasn't the hardened criminals that, that messed with me, that, that part of the job I was, I was in one officer involved shooting in my time as a police officer um, shot at a few times throughout my career. Um, but it wasn't the hardened criminals or being shot at or anything like that, that messed with me. It was the seeing dead children or seeing mm. the effects of, of physical abuse or mental abuse, like seeing children, you know, and I call them children because they're young, but seeing children, uh, you know, 12 years and under 14 years and under taking their own lives and because of mental, physical and verbal abuse from family, you know, cyberbullying, you name it. And that's what hurts me the most because I, I, like I said, I'm a father. I have three small children. My oldest is eight. My youngest is four. Mm. So seeing that type of, that's what messed with me the most. Mm. You know, I, I can remember several times texting my wife on the middle, in the middle of the night, please kiss, kiss my kids one more time for me. Tell them daddy loves them. Mm. Not because I was scared of what I was about to encounter, but more because I just saw something that was really traumatic. And that, that took its toll on me. Is that what, what caused you? So after, after the six years in SWAT, wh- where did you go next and how did that kind of change? So I stayed on the SWAT team. Um, and then I was accepted onto our department. Our department was, uh, there was 10 of us that were able to be cross-sworn as U.S. Marshals mm. and uh, join a fugitive task force team. Um, so I was able to basically stay on the SWAT team and then do this really cool job of chasing down fugitives for the city of Ontario and then for the for the state of California on the Pacific Southwest side. So really awesome job, phenomenal undercover work, um, surveil- a lot of surveillance, but we were also very proactive and looking for these bad, I mean, the worst of the worst, murderers, attempt murder guys, um, gangsters, like very violent criminals. That's what we were tasked with doing was finding those guys. Hmm. So I did that for four years on top of the SWAT side of things. And then um, my four years was up because there's usually a cap on certain certain jobs within smaller agencies. And um, my time was up and my wife and I had always talked about moving to Montana. And since my time was up on that really awesome job, you know, my kids were still very young. We decided to take this leap of faith and move to Montana. That's and, a pretty big move, both geographically oh, and, and did man. you know what you were going to do when you moved or did you look for a job once you moved or how did that so, go? I started looking into law enforcement and my wife ran across a picture on uh, one of the agencies up here. It was a hand-drawn sketch of a, of a police officer and his canine and it said to, to this officer's name and uh, thank you for your years of service. And I looked at the name and I looked at the picture and I'm like, no way. I know that guy. I served in the Marine Corps with that guy. And I haven't talked to him in 10 plus years. I didn't even have his number in my phone. And I scrambled, called, contacted some buddies and I called him and I said, hey, dude, are you still a Missoula cop? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, that's funny. I'm a cop down here and I'm thinking about moving up there. And lo and behold, Montana accepted my California qualifications as a police officer. So I didn't have to go through an academy up here. They Again, I went through another hiring process and uh, Missoula PD hired me. So, what was the, what was the biggest differences in, in, oh, in, in those two roles? 
I was driving a Ferrari in California and I came up here and they gave me a Pinto. <laughs> <laughs> Missoula is a good town and they're good cops. It was just, I struggled. I'll, I'll be very, very blunt with, uh, with you guys and the listeners was I struggled with that transition. Um, I think I, I, I do, I've been diagnosed recently with PTSD, uh, with major depression. Um, I just started some, some medication to kind of combat some of those feelings. I am in therapy and I'll be a little sidebar is, uh, I'm a huge proponent of this. Mm -hmm. Um, we as veterans and cops and firemen and whoever, we need to talk about what's going on men, especially. Um, and I can only speak because I am a man. Um, but from my time in the Marine Corps, you know, we have a pack, right? We have a pack and it's only so big, right? And you take some traumatic experiences, you throw it in the pack. Well, I kept taking all my traumatic experiences from my Marine Corps time to my police time to, to my family time, et cetera. Well, eventually my pack started overflowing and I became really, really depressed, made some terrible decisions as a husband and a father. Um, and, um, was on a path of self-destruction. I had contemplated suicide. I'd contemplated divorcing my wife. I contemplated on quitting my job and my career, something I really grew to love. I love being a police officer. Um, and I started being, I, I had this epiphany and I hit rock bottom kind of at the same time. And I said, what's the one thing that's really messing me up? And it was being a cop. It was time away from my wife and kids, time away from um, family time. I missed all of my kids' soccer games. I've missed countless birthday parties, barbecues, uh, holidays, you name it, to include my own birthday uh, mm -hmm. because of work. And that became a problem to me. And it, again, hitting rock bottom at the same time, having this epiphany of you need to get your, get your priorities straight. And um, again, kind of starting to be real with myself and my family and expressing to my wife where I really was and not just putting on that front of everything's hunky-dory, everything's good to go. No, um, I, I finally broke down and told her I'm having some problems. I need to start seeing help. And uh, we started going to marriage counseling. And then at the same time, I was, I'm seeing a uh, psychotherapist to work on some of my problems that I'm working through you know some ptsd some major depression i, was, I also suffer some from like crazy anxiety <laughs> so i'm learning but um ultimately um it caused me this cost me my career as a police officer mm. but one door closed another graciously opened mm. well so, you know a couple of things there first of all i, I sorry i just dumped on you <laughs> no i appreciate your your courage and vulnerability and honesty in that and Thank you. A, a couple of things that stand out to me first of all for you know any listener that identifies with that i can just i can only speak for myself but i imagine it's very true of other listeners when i hear your story like my respect for you grows it it you know i see the courage to face that. I see the courage to be honest about that and address that. And like my respect for you grows leaps and bounds. And I feel mm -hmm. like when I've been on the other side of talking about similar things in my own life, 
there is always that hesitation to speak because there is the fear that I will be rejected or looked down on or, or whatever the story is, which I've never found that to be true. Like, I feel like anytime someone has opened up and shown that sort of courageous vulnerability, it's always a sense of like, I trust this person more. I respect them more. I believe in them more. So, and, and I want to highlight for listeners, you know, the, the courage that I believe it takes for you to share what you just did as you did. And, you know, I'll say that for myself, you know, I was, I was on submarines. I was not on combat tours. I was certainly, I was in Silicon Valley. I was certainly not a police officer or in law enforcement for over a decade. And I have worked with a therapist for over five years and it's been such an incredible help. And I see couples counselors for my marriage. And like, I view all of these things at, at, at worst as preventative maintenance and at best of like really healing the scars and wounds that we all have. And so I, um, you know, I just want to also stand behind what you're saying and say that like, it's. I feel like the easy way out is the thing that we see glamorized in movies, which is the man who bottles it up and becomes an alcoholic or has violent outbursts. And while that makes for great cinema, it makes for a really shitty life. Oh, and instead, figuring out how to work through those things and find better tools and better skills and better things, it's not easy. My experience hasn't been easy. I can't imagine yours being easy, but that that's the hero that I want to see in the movie. The one who's willing to turn inward and work on this rather than just continue to bury it. And I, you know, I I've buried it with alcohol and with pot and with all sorts of things. It's very easy to do that. It's a lot harder to, to be vulnerable and raw and honest. And so I just, um, I want to say that not just for you, but, but even more so for listeners who would identify with that, that, and we'll put resources in the show notes. There's a lot of great resources out there. The last thing I'll say is that, you know, my story in the military, if you saw a a psychologist, uh, you know, on submarines, like you're very likely not going to be on a yeah, boys. <laughs> yeah. Like it's like, it's like, it's, it's a sign of being broken that will literally potentially end your career. 100%. And I, I hope that for listeners, that's not the case now, but certainly once you get out of the military, realizing that it's like the opposite, it's, it's actually, it's, it's like going to the gym. It's like exercising. It's oh, like, 100%. no, you're not going to the gym because you're broken. You're going to the gym because you're becoming stronger. Right. And how much more do you respect the guy or gal who's going to the gym every morning at 5 a.m. versus the person who's eating Cheetos and watching TV? Like right. I view therapy as that, that gym experience. Oh, 100%. And it, I mean, it's taken me a long time to, if we would have had this opportunity to speak maybe a year or two ago, I would have just told you how bitching I was as a cop. Yep. I would not have told you what's really going on behind the facade, right? Like I call it like an Instagram life. Everybody's life is perfect on yeah. Instagram. My kids are wonderful. My wife is amazing. Look at me on vacation. It's Instagram or social media, whatever, Facebook or whatever you want to call. It. I don't have those things anymore because it's to me, it's fake. It is. It's yeah. not the real life. No one's going to say, man, today just sucked. Yeah. I wanted to beat my kids to, you know, whatever. My kids were just awful. No one says that on Instagram. They're like, oh, look at how cute my kid is. But that's not real. It might be real in that moment, but that's not real. And I, it's taken me a long time to take away my Instagram life and kind of be real. And that's where 
you know, I, I, I try and be a voice because again, like you said, um, you are shunned or is frowned upon to go see a psych. If you're having problems, you're not one of the boys anymore because you can't be trusted yep. because you're, you're, you have problems and that's, that's the wrong attitude to have. And that, that works in, in cop work as well, because I, when I got in my shooting, um, we were mandated to see psychs. Well, I'm not going to tell the psych that I'm not okay because yep. I want to go back to work with my friends yep. and I want my gun back. And, yep. and it's, it, it's not the right thing to do it again. I'm, I'm still learning how to voice my, my problems and, and, you know, be a man about it, if you will. But, uh, yeah, you're, it's frowned upon in, in the, in the line of work that I did as a police officer and a, as a Marine. Yep. You don't, you don't, you're, you're not one of the boys and I always wanted to be one of the boys. Yeah. So. It's, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think that's, that's so true. And it's, there, there's a great, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but there's this documentary called the, I think it's the mask you live in. And it's just kind of talks about, and you know, I know our audience is, is male and female. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's much more predominant for males. This, this documentary does a great job of talking about how just all the ways, <clears throat> even without the military, all the ways growing up in our society that we as men are taught not to share and not to have emotions. We, of course we have emotions, but not to show it or not oh. to feel it. And so, you know, you, you stuff a lot of this down and you don't allow yourself to feel the grief or the rage or the anger or the loneliness or all of these, this huge palette of emotions that we all have, we're, we're kind of allowed to express anger or uh, stoicism, right? Like I'm just going to cut off my emotions. Those are kind of like the two things we're allowed to as men. And, you know, in my own life, and I'm imagining for you, it is, it's like, learning to ride a bike like okay this is what loneliness feels like and this is what joy feels like and let me actually, what feelings feel like <laughs> yeah let me actually and, and even the thought that we're you know and I'm, i've been out of the military for over 10 years as well it's like even even as you and i talk about feelings there is the part of me from the military that's like are you really going to talk about feelings like there's like that judgment 10 years oh, out it's like very it's very ingrained in us oh yeah absolutely and for the listeners, I will tell you right now, it is okay to talk about your feelings. And I'm, I'm only speaking on behalf of males because I'm a male. It's okay. It's okay. Go seek help. If you have a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and your check engine light comes on, are you going to keep driving that car? Probably not. You're going to go take it to the mechanic because you want that car to run. Well, your body is like an engine and your brain is like an engine. And if you don't get it taken care of in service once in a while, it's going to explode and it's going to be not good and not, not in a violent way, but you're going to have a meltdown or it is just take care of yourself. And that's again, what I'm learning. I'm still very much a novice in, in my therapy. I've only been going to therapy for about a year now. So it does work though. I'm able to talk about it where last year, this, this conversation would have never happened. And, and I love that analogy used earlier of your, like the, the pack and you just keep on cramming in from the Marine Corps and from the time in law enforcement, you just keep on packing it in. And I think that's such a great visual because to envision myself with that pack of all that stuff, trying to be competitive in the workplace or trying to be a good father or a good husband, 
I, I can probably do it, but like, why would I want to be weighed down with 150 pounds versus like, if I'm a smart human being, why don't I start taking things out one by one? And over the course of a year, maybe I take five things out of a thousand, right? But like, why not just get rid of this, these pounds? And I, you know, I love what you said too, about social media. Like literally last night, my wife and I were in an argument and there was part me of me that, <laughs> I know, oh, that happens. Yeah. It, it's like, but I, there was part of me that wanted to say, like, it was something like, you know, we are the only people struggling or we are the only people having this problem. It's like, I see the part still where I buy into this Instagram BS versus the quarantine is hard. Marriage is hard. Making a career is hard. Like, being a father is hard, right? Like oh God. it feels like no one talks about that. And yet it's our universal experience, but I'm like you, it doesn't help me to see someone on social media pretending that it's all great. Like we all struggle. We all have things that right. just suck. Yeah. And I don't get me wrong. I loved, I don't have Instagram anymore. I got rid of my Instagram, got rid of my Facebook, MySpace back in the day. Um, I got rid of all that because it was such a distraction for me. I can remember countless times me and my wife on our quality time sitting on the couch, watching a movie together and me having to pause it. Did you see that? And she's on her face on her phone, scrolling through liking photos, commenting on photos. No, we have to rewind it and vice versa. Me on the same thing and missing that quality time with my wife or my kids because social media was kind of taken over. And I was trying to look at how good everybody else else life was and how can I can portray my life on how awesome it is. Yep. And that's, that's why I got rid of it. Yeah. I just, it's, it's a, I loved it because I was able to keep in con connection with like my buddies that I served with and, and uh, you know, it's a great way to communicate and catch up. But at the same time, it was destroying my family internally. Um, my wife has gotten rid of Facebook. She still has Instagram. Um, and it's still one of our fights all the time. I, Hey babe, I need your help. And she's not listening to me because she's focused on her phone. Yep. And that's still one of our fights to this day is please get off your phone and talk to me. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's one of, I don't, I don't really like resolutions, but one of my, my intentions for this year is like, I want to be more present and patient, especially with my wife and, and what exactly what you're saying for, for, for your wife is what my wife would say of me. And it, and it doesn't necessarily even need to be with me, with my phone here. It's, I could just be in front of her, but my mind is on work or something right. else. And she has to repeat herself or she's even talked about with our, we have a two-year-old son. She's like, Hey, he will say th things to you three times before you register. And it's like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't want that. Like I want to, it's, it's, it's funny from like in a military perspective of like situational awareness. Like I'm literally right. in our kitchen and a bomb could go off and I wouldn't <laughs> notice it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah. You can walk right into my front door if I'm on my phone. Yep. So yep. I, I, I try and put the phone down when I come home and I'm not great at it. I'm still learning, you know, but it's some of the tools that I've learned over, over the course of my, my therapy and just trying to be real with myself on what's going on yep. and what's more important at the, at, you know, in the moment. Hmm. So I love that. One, one thing I, I want to ask about too, it's, it's, it's crazy because almost everyone I've had in the 380 interviews I've done, all of us kind of face 
uh, a struggle to find a new purpose when we leave the military to find a new community when we leave the military. And there's a, Mm -hmm. there is almost like a grieving process of leaving behind something that gives a lot of us fulfillment. And then, you know, for you, you've had to, it it seems like you've had to do that twice now. You've, you, you, I'm guessing you had a lot of purpose and mission and all and community and connection and so many things, you know, there was, it sounds like some negative things as well, but a lot Mm -hmm. of positives and you've had to do that twice now. And I'm just kind of curious how you were able to um, uh, do that, like how you were able to kind of move on and say, I'm going to find my third purpose or my third big thing for myself. So part of my rock bottom and epiphany that I had, like, I'm not kidding. It was literally like simultaneously as it appeared. Um, And I'm not a super religious man, not by any stretch. Um, But I do have some spiritual beliefs and, and uh, this, I'm not trying to go there at all by any means. Um, But what I realized is how do I want to be remembered? What legacy do I want to leave behind? Do I want to be known as a kick-ass cop down for the cause, down to kick in a door, get into a gunfight with, et cetera? Or do I want to be remembered as a good dad? Mm. And I'm working on the good dad part. I'm not a great dad. I have many, many struggles, but I'm working on it. And at the end of the day, what's more important? Being a knuckle-dragging cop that's down for the cause or being that awesome dad that's at all the soccer games, football games, baseball games, cheerleading, et cetera. And that's what, again, that epiphany was like, that's how I want to be remembered. My kids could care less on my dad was a SWAT cop. He's badass versus my dad was at all my football games. My dad didn't miss anything because he didn't have to work. He was there. And I've seen this because I've been at three different agencies. Now the bus is going to continue. (laughs) <laughs> that bus is going to continue with or without, with, yep. with or without you. Yep. And it sucks because you're like, no, that they, they need me. I'm the best. They need me. No, that bus just kept on going. They didn't slow down. They didn't skip a beat. You're a cog in their wheel, but there's somebody else to fill that spot. Yep. And you can't say that as a dad, you can't say that as a husband, there's no, there better not be no other, other man that's willing to take my spot. Those are my kids. That's my wife. You know, if, yeah. that, if that makes sense. So that's that. how I choose to be remembered. And that's why I've graciously stepped away from law enforcement. I still love cops. I still loved that I was, that I wore that uniform, that I was a police officer and a deputy sheriff and a SWAT cop. I love that part of me, but that is a, that is a chapter in my life, mm. a chapter of my story. But I want the whole story to be, yeah, my dad was a cop. He was a Marine but he was also my dad. He was there for me. So I I love the clarity that that provides though through that simple question of like how you want to be remembered. And um, I also applaud you on not just the level of self-awareness to answer that question and be honest with yourself, but then the audacity to pursue it. I feel like there's many people I know or times in my life when I would even know this isn't right. And then I continue doing it for, for years, you know? And so I love that you were willing to follow that, which again, I don't think is the, I don't think change is ever the easy thing. This this has been a struggle for me. I'm sitting behind a desk (laughs) first time. And since high school that I've actually sat behind a desk, Yeah, but I'm learning to embrace it. Yeah. But I get off at the same time and I get to see my kids play 
every day. I'm, at, I I'm home that. for dinner every night. Yep. T- tell us about, so you're a, a safe school specialist, University of Montana. Tell us what, what sort of work that entails. So based off my past career um, in law enforcement and some of the qualifications that I have, um, the safe school center here works for the state of Montana. We're just housed at the university. I'm a um, letter of appointment employee. So I'm, I buy, I'm paid solely off of grants, off of state and federal grants. Um, but what my job entails is to work with K through 12 schools across the state in developing uh, threat assessment teams. Uh, a threat assessment team is basically um, school officials, law enforcement officials, most likely SROs, counselors, um, certain, certain uh, stakeholders within the city and or county. And um, what they do is they work to prevent um, active shooters, suicides, bullying, drug abuse, drug abuse, uh, et cetera, uh, within the schools. So I work with schools to help develop those teams for them, with them, and teach them how, how best to combat um, those types of actions. You know, that doesn't mean suspensions and expulsions and detentions. It means working with kids and helping them find the resources that they need and uh, to prevent said actions, right? Because the last thing we want is for another active shooter within a school by another student. Mm -hmm. The last thing we want is to have another student take their life because of bullying or cyberbullying or sexual assault, sexual abuse. So working within, within the schools to help develop those teams. I also uh, do site analysis and site surveys. So helping the schools become more hard, like harden them as uh, targets. So they're not so vulnerable working on their vulnerabilities and teachings on how to make them safer. And then uh, another key responsibility that I do is I'm an active shooter instructor. So I can work with law enforcement and the civilian uh, population on how to uh, respond during an active shooter event. So teaching teachers and students on how to run hide fight basically, and what, when, and, or how to apply those, those actions. Mm. So. I love, you know, I love the aspect of, I, I think of preventative maintenance again, where the work that you're doing is, is, is having that community impact. I love the I'm aspect <laughs> of, yeah, I love that though. But I also, I think there's a great example there too, where, you know, it, it does sound like there's a big transition. You spend a de- over a decade doing anything and you, you make a switch. There's so much there, but I love this thought of you having more time with your family, more predictability, all of these things. And I know that, you know, every single one of the people I've interviewed for the show, there's always these trade-offs, you know, I don't know if anyone ever gets it hitting on everything, but it's like, yeah, this is something I like. I don't like this, but I get time with my family or whatever else. And it's, um, that's kind of the never ending juggling act. And, and well, it's it, a battle. <laughs> it is. And, and one thing I loved, I, I, I remember what you said earlier. You, it, I think what you had said was something like, um, like I want to be a good father and I'm, I'm working to do that. And I feel like that's something I've learned over the last year is like, I have these visions of what a good father, husband, whatever provider, all of these things are. And I may never be that, but it's like the struggle to get there 
is what matters. Like that's, that's where heroism is. That's in my view, where the warrior comes in is like the pursuit of something that I may never attain, but it's like, I, I screw up all the time as a dad, but I want to be a good father and I'm trying to be Mm -hmm. a better father. And I feel like that might be what I need to settle for is just the constant pursuit rather than feeling like, yeah, I nailed it as a dad today. That, well, see, that's what's great about it, though, is you can have those good days where like, dude, I was just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like my kids love me today, but the next day is going to be different. And it is that constant give and take that battle, that struggle of. And again, that's what I'm learning right now is some days I just suck. It's just it is what it is. But I'm learning even more so to talk to my kids about it. Listen, babe, I'm sorry. Talking to my daughter. Listen, baby, I'm sorry. Daddy yelled at you about that. That was not OK. Daddy had a temper. He's sorry. I will do better next time. And letting my kids know, one, it's okay to say you're sorry. And two, it's okay to have a bad day. Let's learn from it. And that's, again, what I'm learning. And that this is coming from therapy. This is coming from, you know, uh, me trying to work on myself. Because the old me would have been like, well, it was her fault. She pissed me off. Yep. She's eight. That's <laughs> not her fault. <laughs> so, uh, again, that's where... I'm learning and, you know, a shout out to Andy Stump because I've heard him say that he's had moments with his kids and then he goes and apologizes to them. That's where I got it from. I didn't, I'm reading, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I heard it from somebody. I'm trying to apply it. So that's literally how my day, I have a two-year-old and my day started where I was like, yeah. And I'm like, (laughs) daddy's really sorry. I got mad yesterday and I yelled at you. And it's like, there's a lot of shame. Like there's, I have a lot of shame that I'm like, Oh, I'm yelling. I am a 40 year old man yelling at a two year old child. Oh, like yeah. that, like this little tiny bean has gotten yep. me to lose my shit. Yep. And it's like, well, they know all the buttons to push. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that thought though, of like, let me at least show him, like you're saying, let me at least show him that I can apologize and I can recognize when I did wrong. Cause mm-hmm. I, I'm two years into parenting and I realize me, showing up as the perfect dad will occasionally happen, but for the most part, not. So let me at least show him the example of a dad who's trying to be a better dad and taking ownership for all the times that I screw up. So he can see me working on this where it's like, yeah, I'm not proud of that and take ownership and we're going to try to do better. Yep. 100%. That's, that's what I'm trying to do because I, I want, I don't want model citizens for my kids. I just want them to be decent. I just want them to be decent, hardworking kids. Yeah. You know, that, and that's the example I'm trying to show that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be uh, apologetic. It's okay to make mistakes because I'm the last person that's close to perfect. I promise yeah. you that I'm nowhere near it. Yeah, I feel the same and, way. Uh, I'm, I'm trying my best to at least be an example for my kids on an imperfect person trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I love that. Well, we're, we've got a, just a few minutes left. I oh, always sure. like to uh, just kind of leave the last couple minutes um, open to, you know, I, I just really, again, appreciate your sharing your story, but also mm-hmm. sharing your struggle and um, uh, sharing. It's very clear the man that you want to be. And I, I respect and admire the man you want to be even more because you're you're going after that. You know, it's like, I, I can't articulate it well, but it's like, I feel like we try to present on Instagram or Facebook, the person we aspire to be right. when at least for me, what I'm hungry for is knowing the man or woman who is 
going through the meat grinder to try to achieve that and screwing up and being knocked down and getting back up. Cause that, that's someone I can learn from. Like you're someone I can learn from and comply to my own life. And the, the image of perfection, I don't think it exists. And I got nothing to learn from that. <laughs> There's nothing right. there. So I, I appreciate that vulnerability and that courage, but I just wanted to make space for anything else you want to share with listeners before we wrap up. Honestly, I just, this is more for the, the veterans is don't become a statistic guys seek the help. We're all here. We all have our problems and it's okay to have those problems. Just seek the help. And that goes for marriages. If you guys are having struggles in your marriage, get help. Don't quit. And yeah, I don't know. Honestly, this has been awesome. This is a true honor for me to be on this podcast. I'm very humbled by it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you as well. And I'll thank Steve right yeah, after absolutely. this via text message, but yeah, such a, such a, a good time chatting with you and um, thank you for sharing your story. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Surface, surface, surface. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our chief of staff, Steve Bain, our editor, Lex Brown, and our head of social media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.